If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the History Extra End of Roman Britain special podcast series. This is episode 7 and I'm David Musgrove. Thus far, we've heard lots of expert analysis from curators, historians and archaeologists on what was going on in the 5th century as the influence of the Roman Empire on Britain declined. Now it's the turn of the scientists, because as several of our previous guests have commented, it's the science that has the potential to transform our understanding of what was happening particularly when we think about the vexed question of population movement during the period. So today I'm turning to Dr Sam Leggett of the University of Edinburgh. She is an expert in the field of stable isotope analysis. And if you don't know what that is, then never fear, because the very first question I asked Sam was if she could explain what we're actually talking about. So what we're talking about is the chemical makeup of your body, basically. So you can do stable isotope analysis for medical research. People use that all the time to have a look at how our bodies are functioning. Or we can look at ancient human remains to work out what they were eating and where they were living and moving around in the past as well. So essentially what I'm looking at is chemical memories of what you ate um, and where that food and drink came from. Um, and when you eat 
whatever you're eating, whether it's um, animal meat or if it's plants. Um, and when you're drinking any beverages, those chemicals get broken down by your body and are used to make your hair, your teeth, your skin, your bones. Um, and so in archaeology, that's what we're looking at, those chemical memories of what people were consuming. Um, so it sounds super scary, but we're just looking at, you know, those sort of like molecular bits of your food that's left behind hundreds, thousands of years after you're, you're gone. And how long have people been using this technique for? Is it fairly new or has it been going for a while? It's been going for a while. So some of the early studies were in the 60s and 70s. Um, that was kind of when people worked out you could use that, um, at least for archaeology. Um, chemists have been using it for other stuff for ages. And then in the last sort of 20, 30 years, it's really come into its own and we've um, gotten a lot better and more precise um, with what we're looking at. So can you um, could you just take us into the laboratory for a second? What do you actually do? How do you how do you conduct this science? Yeah, so there's two main routes. There's looking at uh, diet stuff, what people are eating, and then there's looking at the mobility stuff. So if we're looking at dietary um, stable isotope analysis, that's usually done on uh, people's bones or their um, tooth roots. And what we tend to do there is we select um, bones that look good, um, look like they've preserved well, um, and you chop them up into little bits. And what we want to get out of them, um, that or your tooth root is collagen. It's the fluffy, nice stuff that makes your bones bendy. Um, and we want to get rid of the mineral um, part of your bone that makes them strong and lets you stand up and walk around. So um, I chop off little bits, I clean them to make sure we get any soil off, and then I dissolve them in acid. Um, and that can take uh, anywhere from a couple of days to about a week. Um, and then you freeze dry it out, you turn it into liquid and you freeze dry it to get fluffy looking collagen it's not the collagen you get in face masks um, or things like that but it's yeah it's like a fluffy sort of um, spongy looking substance and then we pop that in a mass spectrometer and that tells us about the carbon and nitrogen in people's bones um, but then if we're looking at the mobility side of things uh, we use tooth enamel mostly so I get somebody's tooth and I drill off uh, the enamel and make it into powder um, and that looks relatively unexciting. It's a small, you know, amount of white powder. And then uh, you clean it as well. You want to get rid of any contaminants that might be left by the soil, you know, just stuff that's sticking to the tooth. Um, and you treat it with uh, some weak acid and some other chemicals to get rid of that. And then likewise, you put it into a mass spec. But this one, because it's, uh, you want to look at the mineral and not the fluffy bit, um, it sort of vaporizes it into um, gas. And then likewise, we look at oxygen um, or you can do a slightly different process and get the strontium out to have a look at that as well but i can talk about what that means in a bit so quite a convoluted process does it take a quite a while for this to happen yeah so the dietary stuff is a little bit more straightforward you put the bone in the acid and you poke it until it's squishy <laughs> um, so it um it Sounds really complex, but really we're just, yeah, putting that in acid and poking it. Um, but the stuff for doing the tooth enamel is a little bit more complicated um, just because the mineral bit's a bit more um, tricky to um, sort of extract and get a handle on. And um, to be clear, you're not getting any sort of dating information from doing this, are you? It doesn't, it doesn't no. tell you the age of these bones. No, no. This is just about what they were eating and where they were living at any given point. Um, but you can use that same fluffy collagen to do radiocarbon dating, but that's a different process. And it also, uh, a lot of our listeners will no doubt heard of, uh, of DNA analysis and genetic studies. This again is, is separate to, to that. Yeah, exactly. They do a different thing um, that's got a lot of different extraction processes um, 
separate separate lab kit. Yeah. So, so thinking about isotopes, and so obviously it's going to tell us about, uh, as you said, dietary habits and mobility hab- habits potentially. So, very interesting information for when we're looking at the at the fifth century in Britain and the and the late Roman post Roman period. Um, what projects have you been involved with that would uh, that look at that uh, period? Yeah, so the main one was my PhD a couple of years ago at Cambridge, um, where I analysed human remains from the end of the Roman period up to just after the Norman Conquest. I was taking a really big approach, and I looked at roughly about four hundred odd individuals within that time range. So that was the biggest project I did with that. Um, but I also incorporated published data. Um, so people have often done sort of one cool cemetery here, another cemetery there, and wanted to bring that all together to have a look at what's happening in Britain at a bigger scale. Um, and then more recently, I've been mostly doing work, similar sort of thing with isotopes, but a little bit later, sort of just after that 5th, 6th century, um, and looking at what happens after that period. So you've done some work specifically yourself and quite a few other people have done some work. Roughly speaking, how much work has been done in in looking at isotopes in in the late Roman, post-Roman period in Britain, would you say? Yeah, so there's really not much. Like It's a lot for archaeology, but in terms of just within Britain, we're looking at a couple of hundred samples for that fifth century phase. Um, So really we're drawing from a data set that's, you know, not not massive. Um, it still needs a lot of work to be done. Um, but there's some exciting results. And you're, so, so where, where are we getting the, uh, the, the raw material that you're, um, that you're investigating? This is from cemetery sites. Yeah, cemetery sites. So uh, some of them are recently excavated, coming from you know commercial work that's being done digging before development, and then about the other half has come from excavations from a while ago that are in museums um, where the skeletal remains are kept. And what are the limitations of the of the science here? What can't it tell us? We've talked about it. it doesn't help with dating. What else doesn't it tell us? So um, it can give us a rough idea of where somebody might be from, but it can't give us an exact pinpointed location. It gives you sort of probabilities um, and options, and it can sometimes rule places out completely, um, but it can't give you a nice pinpoint on a map to say, this is where this person grew up. And for the dietary stuff, it gives you um, a rough idea of what types of resources people are exploiting. So you can say whether somebody's eating mostly terrestrial food, if somebody's eating mostly marine food um, and how much animal protein they might be eating. So, you know, are they eating something that's akin to a vegan diet um, or are they on the carnivore end of the scale? Are they just absolutely stuffing their faces full of meat? Um, And is that meat coming from a whale or is that meat coming from, you know, sheep, um, goats, cattle? But it can't, again, give us really specific sort of species identification or exact amounts of what people are eating. And I'm going to drop in an awkward word here. Does it tell us anything about ethnicity? No, no. It tells you where somebody might have grown up from or, like I said before, where they definitely didn't grow up. Um, But it doesn't tell you about ethnicity or their identity and what they thought of themselves. Just possible locations. Okay. And before we get on to sort of what it does tell us, is there... Is there competing information that you're getting from these data sets? Is, is there one uniform picture that comes out or does some, some sites say one thing and other sites say something different, do you think? 
Yeah, it's so variable depending where you're looking at in Britain as to what's going on. Um, so there is a unified picture for what's happening in terms of diet at the end of the Roman period, which is really interesting. People's diets are changing. And I think, and a lot of us think that that's to do with uh, the change in where people can source their food from, the collapse of sort of Roman supply networks, uh, changes in uh, climate that mean that people have to adapt how they're farming. And that seems a pretty unified picture. Um, but the mobility stuff is super regionally variable. Um, and what men and women are doing as well is very different, which is really interesting. Um, who's moving where is complicated. Let's just take a break for a second, because Sam has mentioned there that the isotope analysis evidence does indicate that people's diets were changing in Britain at the end of the Roman period. Now, that potentially tallies with what some of our previous guests have mentioned in terms of this idea of the population being able to move to an agricultural pattern that was more akin to a subsistence approach rather than having to produce a surplus of grain for use across the empire. Does the science here back up that idea? Is the diet more or less varied than what it was during the Roman period? Yeah, definitely. I think that's sort of what we're seeing is it's subsistence-based, it's local um, agricultural economies, um, and it seems to be that there's a slight increase in people's nitrogen, which might suggest that they are eating slightly more animal protein than they were previously in the Roman period, which was a bit unexpected for me, to be honest. I thought the Romans might be having more of that, um, but I think it's different. Um, so again, eating more oysters and shellfish and freshwater fish, but then um, they're eating more sort of domestic animals, but the carbon shifts as well. So it seems to be yeah, far more local, far more subsistence based. You're eating stuff that you're growing in your back garden, um, maybe trading in a local market, but not going super far afield to bring in your food. Lots of people might be familiar with the fact that on a lot of Roman sites in Britain, you find a lot of oysters and they seem to love that. Um, and there's a lot of exotic food types. You know, they're bringing in different animals from across the empire, mostly as sort of status foods rather than everyday stuff. So they might not be getting some of these high status foods um, as regularly, but there's a shift away from some of those freshwater or mollusks you know, oysters and things that seems to disappear. And then everybody seems to be mostly having a very terrestrial based diet. So they suddenly sort of stop eating some of those other resources, but they're exploiting more local stuff rather than, you know, super exciting, fancy stuff that can be brought in from all around the Mediterranean and other parts of Europe. Okay. So I hope you'll agree that's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, the dietary evidence there does appear to tie in quite neatly with the idea that people are operating on a much more local level than before as we move into the 5th century. But what about these people themselves? Can the staple isotope analysis technique answer the question of how far people were moving into or indeed out of post-Roman Britain? Yeah, so I think essentially what the um, oxygen and strontium are telling us is quite interesting for the Roman period and the immediate post-Roman period. So oxygen tells you about climate and the types of water people were drinking. So that kind of gives you an idea of where they were. And then the strontium from the tooth enamel tells you about the type of bedrock. Um, and this, those signatures change really markedly in the 5th and 6th centuries. Um, it's almost a pretty immediate um, difference. You do have some continuity. So I think in the Roman period, what we're seeing is most people in Roman Britain are local to where they're buried. So people are, you know, still living and dying in a relatively small radius, but you do have a lot of people with these warmer signatures, presumably coming from Southern Europe, the Mediterranean, other parts of the Roman world. 
when we hit the fifth century, you do have a small amount of people coming from warm places. Um, so there still is some of that connectivity with the old Roman world. The majority of people are still local, but you suddenly get this influx, a sort of 10 to 20% increase of people coming from colder areas in Europe. Um, and that is really, really marked. Um, it shows up pretty much bang on when Bede and some of these other historical um, accounts say that should be happening, um, which is exciting because it's rare that we we get that where you go, oh, cold people turning up, you know, around 450 AD. Um which yeah, it's just is just so exciting, um, and that seems to then continue on in the rest of the post-Roman period, where you have that migration continuing um, on. But men and women are different in in that. But you do see 450 AD is that watershed. And when you say colder places, can you be any more specific, or is that as far as you can go? <laughs> um, for some of them, so more people do oxygen work than strontium work, um, and oxygen is helpful where it kind of goes warm or cold compared to where the person's buried. Sometimes you can get really specific if you're lucky, but often that's about as far as we can go. But for a couple of sites, they've done both, and that allows you to limit the maps of where they might be from. Um, so for some of these people, we are looking at places like northern Germany, Denmark, southern Scandinavia, um, or the low countries and even parts of France. Um, so for some, a handful of individuals, about 50 um, out of the data set, we can actually be a bit more specific about where they could be from. And so we're talking about the, the eastern side of Britain here, uh, I guess, um, specifically when you're talking about people from, uh, from, from continental Europe coming in, yeah? Mostly, but actually there's some surprising people who turn up in uh, Warwickshire, um, in uh, places uh, along the Thames Valley um, and in Yorkshire as well, not necessarily coastal Yorkshire either, like quite far inland. So the most of these colder people are in East Anglia, Kent, Lincolnshire, but um, you do get some people rocking up um, further inland as well. Come back to that in a second. Hold that thought. Um, but, <laughs> but so, so the the idea of people moving from colder places, and, and, and if you're, and if we have, you know, the limited data that you've suggested suggests that it does kind of tie in with this the historical story of the Adventus Saxonum of people moving from uh, northern Europe into. Uh, England into Eastern England, particularly in the fifth century. Your your material does align with that view. Yes, yeah, but the scale of that I think is something that needs to be uh, sort of tackled and disputed. So previously, um, you know, lots of people thought it could be a huge amount of migrants coming in, and um, we're talking, you know, anywhere between a fifty percent replacement or more, um, and then archaeological debates swung backwards and forwards about is it only a small group of people is it like Bede and Gilda say where there's you know a small war band that gets invited in and then they stay and maybe bring their families over later or is it lots of people on mass coming over um and my work suggests that we're looking at uh still about 50 to 60 percent of the population being local so we're not seeing a huge amount of people sort of coming in but you are having still about sort of 30 40 percent of people coming from elsewhere, about 20 to 30 would be from colder regions. And then we still have a small amount, about 10%, who are coming from these warmer regions as well. So that doesn't stop, but you do get these people into Eastern England coming in. 
So uh, you're employing statistics there, though, aren't you? Statistical yes. analysis, because obviously yes. we haven't got uh, the full data set here. No. How, how confident can we be about those numbers? I mean, have we done enough research to, to be able to say that sort of thing with reasonable certainty? The statistics that I've done, I, I think we're pretty confident, but obviously, as with everything in archaeology, we could dig up another cemetery and that could completely change our minds. Um, as I said before, we're looking at, you know, several hundred individuals here, not thousands for the fifth century. Um, so it is really questionable. And the other thing for particularly the east of England is a lot of these cemeteries are cremations um, and they're really notoriously hard to do isotopic work on. So we don't have oxygen from them. There's some strontium coming out, um, which you can do, but um, that picture might change when we've got more data there for sure. So from the cemeteries that we've analysed and we've tried to analyse most of the people in you know, sort of big sites, we can be confident that those communities, those stats stand up, but for the whole of Eastern England, um, watch this space that could shift dramatically in the next couple of years. But right now you have a, a certain amount of alignment between the evidence you're seeing and with the the historical story, kind of the traditional history that people have, have, uh, have followed. What about uh, alignment with the archaeological evidence, and I'm thinking grave goods, um, items buried with these, with the with the, uh, the the bones that you're you're looking at. Does the does the isotopic evidence align with uh, interpretations of what that grave could say? No, <laughs> and I was I was hoping that would be the case because one of the big things um, about these cemeteries in this period is the big change we see in what people are getting buried with and how they're getting buried. Those brooches um, that people you might be talking to some other people about that um we get changes in brooch styles they're really evocative um but i could find no link between the stuff people were buried with and where they grew up which was really surprising (laughs) we thought that they came over with this stuff and then started to make it in england um but possibly not this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Now, this is a moment where we really need to stop and gather thoughts for a second. Robin Fleming, in the last episode, cautioned against reading too much into some of the scientific analysis that we've had because of the limited data set. And Sam has agreed that more work needs to be done to expand on what we know. But she's also saying that what we've got so far from the isotope analysis does indeed back up this idea that's cited in the historical sources of an influx of people from the continent to Britain though it's interesting that some of the incomes are from warmer rather than colder places, which isn't something that you hear from Bede, for instance. 
Crucially, though, the incomers that the scientists have identified do not seem to be linked clearly with the new forms of material culture that archaeologists have seen appearing in the 5th century. You remember that Robin mentioned last time that we're overly hung up on the idea of ethnicity and that where someone came from wasn't necessarily as important as how they identified themselves as. Well, Sam's interpretation seems to be in accord with that. So what I think that suggests is that certainly some of the early waves of migrants did bring over some of these new dress styles um, and then everybody sort of adopted it. So I think what we're seeing, particularly then when we look at um, how people are interacting with each other and the diets of these people as well, which change over their life, um, these communities are coming together and creating new um, distinct ideas about who they are and how they want to express themselves. So it's more about where you've then been living for the last couple of decades of your life rather than where you came from, which is really quite exciting, I think, and kind of ni- quite a nice story um, about this time period. It's not an us and them. It's a new community identity being formed. Uh, and one other uh, data set, data source that, we, that, that applies to this period is, is the DNA evidence. I wonder, um, does, how does your uh, isotopic evidence align or not align with the DNA evidence? It aligns pretty well from everything that I've heard from colleagues doing the ancient DNA. So they're seeing roughly the same proportions of people who've got different lines of ancestry, um, those regions where they think that new sort of DNA input is coming from broadly aligns with some of these regions in continental Europe, I think I'm seeing from the isotopes, um, which is nice because it's rare that all of that actually matches up. Um, And particularly in the east of England, that seems to be quite a strong signature. And then we're both seeing um, sort of a gradient further west with um, what's happening, who's coming in from the continent um, versus who could be coming in from Western Britain as well, um, which is, yeah really, really good. (laughs) We weren't expecting that we'd all agree. (laughs) And you mentioned earlier uh, discrepancies in gender in terms of mobility. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So um, with some of those historic accounts, it's often been assumed that more men have come over from those cooler regions um, and that you might still be having roughly equal numbers of men and women from parts of the other parts of the Roman Empire coming in. So certainly in the Roman period, we see that men and women are coming in at roughly the same proportions from outside of Britain. So that might be families coming in. Uh, There's slightly more men being non-local, which again could be something to do with Roman militaries or Romans elites being sent over and marrying into local communities. But then when we hit the fifth century, um, what we're seeing is again, men and women, broadly the same proportions coming from colder areas of Europe. So it doesn't seem like the men are coming over in force and then bringing some women over. It seems to be possibly families coming over because we have children with these signatures as well um, who clearly died quite young after and quite soon after they came um, over. But there are subtle differences, um, particularly in regions. So in Kent and East Anglia, um, it's pretty much 50-50 with um, men and women, or rather I should say uh, Kent, it's 50-50 with men and women from inside and outside. Um, so essentially you've got roughly 50% local for both men and women and roughly 50% non-local. <laughs> so in East Anglia, um, we do have more men and women compared to 
regions further west coming in from colder areas, but the men are really striking. So there's more men quite considerably, about double the amount of men who have colder signatures than the women, um, which is really interesting. And they're one of the few places where we also have lots of people coming in from warmer regions in that fifth century. Um, so East Anglia is quite odd and special um, in that regard, which is kind of backed up by the archaeology. Um, but then when you go further west in Britain, you tend to get uh, it being a majority of all of the communities being local with sort of outliers being that sort of continental signature. Uh, and it'll vary really quite considerably. So uh, looking at some of my graphs here, you know, when you get to sort of the Upper Thames Valley, um, you tend to get more men being the outsiders um, and more women being local, but then that shifts again when you go even sort of further west. So it's a really complex picture about who's connected to where um, and whether or not they're bringing their families with them. And do you want to hazard a guess about just sort of general? I'm going to ask you to generalise about something which is clearly complicated. What what do these gender differences mean? What does that suggest to you as to what's actually going on? So I think in Kent, it's really obvious whole families are moving over together and then they're becoming part of communities that are already well established. Um, and it looks like from some of the graves that we've got that have a man and woman side by side, we don't necessarily have the DNA for all of them, but it looks like they might have married a local person. So you've got one person with a non-local signature, one person with a local signature, then you can have another double burial where they're both local, another one where they're both non-local. So it seems to be a um, pretty mixed picture in Kent, but a uh, nice sort of community cohesion. When you then get further west, um, so, yeah, Oxfordshire um, and over into sort of the Thames Valley, uh, that seems to be mostly males coming in from the continent. So that kind of maps with what Bede and Gildas were saying about some of these male warriors potentially coming over and that sort of story of them sort of replacing the elites um, or something else going on there um, and becoming sort of isotopic outliers for their communities, um, whereas everybody else is mostly local. Um, but there is also these really interesting hints in sort of the Midlands and the Thames Valley of people coming from Western Britain in quite high numbers. Um, and Janet Kay and others have already spoken about this, but the bigger isotope data set that I'm dealing with shows that there's a lot of people coming over from Wales um, and Cornwall, um, Devon, and coming further east as well, which um, is quite interesting. And those are mostly women. So you've got these men coming in from the east and from the continent, and you've got these women coming in from the west and joining these established communities, um, which is, yeah, interesting. That is that is really interesting, isn't it? Because that's not something which is attested in any um, historical sources that, that, that I'm aware of. I could be wrong. Um, but to, to have that sort of most of the most of the conversation about this period is is about people migrating or, or coming possibly with with violent intention from uh, northern Europe to the east of Britain but you're saying that actually there's a lot of movement that we don't we don't talk about we don't hear about within Britain as well what, what about Ireland does that does that play into this story as well yeah, definitely. So Ireland could be a potential uh, childhood origin for a lot of the skeletons I've looked at. Um, so it has a lot of overlap um, in its isotopic map with Britain. So it's really hard to tell, particularly when you have individuals without grave goods. It's often been speculated that they are the, you know, local Romano-British or the um, Brythonic, you know, and Celtic sort of peoples. Um, so the ADNA will be interesting to see if that sort of 
ends up mapping out with those individuals. But Island is definitely possible um, and it wouldn't be out of the realms of possibility from what I'm seeing. And what about uh, north-south movement of people in Britain? Is uh, We haven't talked about Scotland very much. Is, is, is there much going on there? Not a lot. So there could be quite a lot of movement from the Scottish lowlands and the border regions because they're pretty indistinguishable from a lot of northern England. Um, but the Highlands are really interesting with their strontium and they really stand out, and the Hebrides as well. Um, there seems to be movement from southern Britain up into those regions. I've got some individuals buried on Orkney who look like they could be from Kent, um, which is quite a way to go. <laughs> and But then from that movement further south, that doesn't seem to be as likely in a lot of cases because um, they should really, they would pop <laughs> for their strontium. Um, so they don't seem to be coming further south necessarily from the highlands and islands. I'm just wondering, do you get any markers of uh, food insecurity in your research? I'm thinking if somebody is, is has suffered malnutrition or something at some formative stage. So I, I'm, I'm just wondering, in, in these women who are in the West moving east, whether they're moving because they, they weren't able to get sufficient food, does that... Can you infer anything from that? Yeah, so um, we can definitely look for that. So when we have a look at the collagen from people's teeth, um, that will tell you about childhood diet. So that will tell you if there's been that food insecurity in those early stages of life. Um, And you can do this really great technique where you take tiny little slices all the way down and essentially build up a seasonal picture of what was happening. So see if there's periods of malnutrition or periods where it's, you know, better and more stable. Um, And it's worked really well with like Irish famine cemeteries. That was sort of where people first sort of showed this. Um, We don't have a lot of that type of data for early medieval and sort of late Roman Britain. Um, And it does seem that there were periods of food instability, um, but that's something that we need to work on with some of these women coming further west because that is being one thing that people have thrown out there. Is this what's happening? You know, exactly what you were thinking. Um, So hopefully we'll find that out. But there's nothing at the moment in the data to suggest that there was sort of a big famine um, that drove everybody that way. Um, But it has also been suggested given some of the texts that um, the word in Old English for Welsh is also synonymous with slave. So have some of these people been forcibly removed um, from their homes as well? Um, I don't know. There's some really interesting evidence coming out of this work then, and a lot more to do by the sound of things. But as it stands, it's backing up one aspect of the traditional narrative, that of this migration of people. But does it do anything to support the motive of this movement, which if you follow Bede is because they were mercenaries invited to fight over for the remaining Britons? So can we identify violence at all in the archaeological context of Sam's research? No, there's surprisingly quite a big lack of that sort of violence, either, you know, sharp force trauma that you might expect from weapons or even, you know, other types of violence that we might see on the skeletons. There's relatively little of that. Um, We get that in the Viking Age, but for the 5th century, there's really quite a lack (laughs) of what we're seeing. But these people are often buried with weapons, so that's clearly part of their identities, but we're not seeing a violent takeover. That's not what I'm seeing in the in the data at all. And it also has been suggested, like you said, there's a big, you know, sort of burly blokes coming over. I couldn't find any consistent um, patterns with their heights either. You know, Heinrich Harker and other people have said, ah, they're taller and they come in and the men suddenly shoot up in height. In some communities and certain cemeteries, there does seem to be that, but that is marked with what I'm seeing with changes in diet. So I think actually some of that height difference might be because 
the diet's changed. And so suddenly, you know, we all know that, you know, if you eat better, your height's more likely to kind of reflect that. So um, they're not really being violent. They're not all suddenly rapidly taller. Um, that might be the case in some sub areas, but um, it's not consistent across all of Eastern Britain, that's for sure. So this is a pretty complicated picture, isn't it? But to, to summarise, it sounds like it's certainly the fifth century is a period of, of considerable mobility amongst people as far as the evidence that you're um, pulling through is is is, is shown so, and we've got people coming from the continent into the east and, and moving possibly quite a long way into britain and we've got people possibly moving from the west to the east as well so a lot of a lot of mobility all across the place um and and different gendered movements uh, in certain places as well is that is that a reasonable summation have i, have I captured the story yep you've captured that well yep when do things start to calm down when do populations become more sedentary they don't <laughs> <laughs> um which i was expecting we might see um you know eventually uh things sort of settle down people kind of you know just uh sort of hang out in their local communities farming doing their thing um if anything mobility actually goes up in the seventh century um the recent work that I've done over the last year suggests that that increases even more, um, which is outside the realm of what all of the historical sources say should be happening. Um, from my understanding, the DNA evidence also backs that up. The 7th and 8th centuries, there's even more people coming in from even more diverse regions. We're seeing sort of the isotopes go even sort of crazier in terms of the um, range that we're getting. Um, and up to the sort of middle medieval period, you know, the post-Norman conquest, people are still coming in. Um, so it never stops. So this is a really interesting story you've told, and and the and obviously the science um, is is very interesting. Are there any um, are there any problems with it that that could exist? Are there any reasons for us to doubt what you're seeing? Yeah, no, there are. So if anybody looks like they're warmer in their oxygen, we always have to be worried about this thing called brewing and stewing, um, which is which is a fun a fun name for a science problem. Um, essentially, here in Britain, we love to drink a lot of tea. Um, so whenever you drink water that's been heated, or if you eat things like stews, you know where you've maybe been boiling it on the stove for a while, um, or have alcohol, beer. Um, or wine is a particularly um, terrible thing for this. It makes you look like you're from somewhere warmer than where you actually have gotten that water from because you've artificially heated it up and changed its chemical composition. So um, we always have to be concerned about that. And the great sort of example of this is Richard III. That was like a really you know famous example of uh, this type of analysis being done on a known person. Um, his oxygen looks super warm and we know that he wasn't basking himself on you know the sunny shores of the Mediterranean he was over here dealing with the wars of the roses um and that's because he drank and imported a lot of wine and so it is a question particularly in the late Roman period where we know the Romans are loving to import their own wine um particularly from those lovely vineyards uh, that they've become accustomed to is that something that we're seeing so are these people actually from warmer regions or are they coming from um, or are they just drinking a lot of wine and beer? Um, the other problem that we have as well is climate change can affect the oxygen in particular. So um, you have to be wary of if everybody suddenly drops and looks really cold. Is that a big migration signature coming in or is it climate cooling? And we have the late antique Little Ice Age 
around about the 6th century, um, sort of mid-6th century. So that is a question for, thankfully, not for the 5th century. We're pretty solid on that. But the the later periods um, to try to disentangle climate change from um, actual movement of people. So that is a problem. And this, but the strontium science is pretty good. One, one problem we might have is uh, when people have been using agricultural lime. Um, so we think that modern fertilizers introduce extra strontium into the soil. And if these skeletons have been sitting under somebody's field for a while, getting dosed um, with chemical fertilizers, uh, if anybody looks super Scandinavian or like they're from the highlands, um, we then might have to go, how how much fertilizer was being used in the field that they were buried in something to think about so there's there's a few problematic things there but it sounds like um scientists are aware of them and you sort of fact that in and, and try and mitigate against those those limitations yeah definitely we plug that into our statistics to put sort of big buffer zones on it so um any of the papers that you'll see coming out should kind of say that and go right okay Outside of this area, we're pretty confident that this is what's happening. Anybody within this buffer zone, be cautious. Um, so, yeah, we try to work that in there. Are there any bits of Britain, you sort of mentioned lots of parts of Britain uh, where we have a sense about what's going on. Are there any bits of Britain where we just don't really know what's happening, where the data is lacking or the work hasn't been done? Yeah, the northwest of England, it's... Um, it's a bit of a black spot for uh, cemetery excavations. There's more coming out now. Um, you know, there's been lots of development there, but that is somewhere where I don't have any isotopic data for skellies um, from this period. So that's a bit of a concern in terms of the picture. Um, and Scotland as well. Um, so we don't have a lot of pre-Viking Age individuals to compare um, what we're seeing in England to, but there's data that should be coming out really, really soon on that. So then we can kind of actually see what the picks and people north of, you know, the wall are doing as well. What, have we missed anything? Any any big things that we should have talked about or any, any things you would like listeners to be aware of? I think we've covered most of it. Yeah, the caveats um, with, yeah, the main things to just be wary of. I guess the other thing that I'd like to sort of raise is about female mobility in particular. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the the men um, and where they might be coming from, but the fact that not just these women from um, further west, but in most of the areas in Kent and East Anglia, um, you'll find that most of the women in these cemeteries will be non-local to where they're buried. They might not be super far away, but there seems to be this pattern of patrilocality and people sort of marrying further afield um and sort of you don't tend to stay very close to where you're buried if you're a woman you tend to kind of go a couple of you know streams over a couple of villages over so the women often look local because they're local to britain but they're actually when you drill down to it um moving about quite a lot to sort of have these marriage patterns and diversify the the groups the kinship groups if that makes sense you know, you don't marry within your own village. That's a terrible idea. You go a couple of villages over um, and the data is getting good enough now where we can see that tiny movement. So they're kind of local to East Anglia, but they've probably moved, you know, up to 100 kilometres away sometimes, um, but just within that region. But And it's the women who are doing the moving, not the men. Exactly, yeah. The men, is, the men are staying put. If men have grown up around their village, they're staying there for the most part, apart from these big incomers, you know, from colder regions, the really long distance migrants. But if the guys are, are local, they're usually hyper local. Um, 
whereas the women have got these smaller mobility patterns, which are really interesting to kind of track. That's interesting. You can you can imagine what sort of society might uh, might might be um, linked to that, can't you? You've, you mentioned marriage there a couple of times. Is that um, is it, we can't tell obviously whether they these people were wed, can we? All we can tell is that they're partnered in some way. Exactly. So uh, what we're hoping will come out in the next couple of months, I've, I've heard it teased from the DNA people, um, is some family trees for some of these cemeteries I've looked at. So yeah, absolutely. We can't tell if they were actually wed, but you can tell if they've had kids together. Um, so it'll be really, really interesting to see um, how that works. And, you know, if there's consistently, you know, groups of women marrying into another um, village further down the road, or if it, how regularly they sort of change that up. Um, and whether their kids then go back or, you know, to reaffirm those um, connections that they've got with those other villages. So that was Dr. Sam Leggett of the University of Edinburgh. And she finished there with that little teaser about some forthcoming ancient DNA research that might shed light on family trees. Well, guess what's coming in the next episode? Yep, I'm talking to Professor Duncan Sayer of the University of Lancaster about this very research. So we'll be able to compare what the evidence from ancient DNA says with what Sam has been telling us about the stable isotope analysis. Exciting stuff, I hope you'll agree. Do come back next time to find out more.